people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 42. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Fred Oswald, professor of psychology at Rice University, to discuss the topic of automated decision-making. Fred received his bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Texas, his master's degree in, and, and PhD in psychology at the University of Minnesota, and his research interests include workforce readiness and quantitative methods such as meta-analysis, psychometrics, and big data. With that, Fred, is there anything else you want the audience to know before we dive into the episode? Hey, Blake. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me join you. Um, I guess I'll add things as we enter into the conversation. I guess biographically, I could say... Um, hey, these days I like walking in my neighborhood. I like playing pinball. I play a little Scrabble now and then. So I'm really a, a dangerous fellow, as you can tell. <laughs> well, I will add a couple of things here. One is uh, that uh, speaking of Scrabble, uh, Fred is actually quite exceptional at Scrabble and Scrabble-like games. I think what they're called Wordle and those other little games where you can uh, try to, uh, what is it, it used to be called Boggle or something like that. Fred is absolutely amazing at that game. So never get in a, never bet Fred on, on those kind of games. But uh, in terms of credentials for this episode, uh, Fred is a, a well-regarded and well-known expert on on these topics, particularly the topic we're going to talk about today, um, automated decision-making. But fr- from a background standpoint, Fred has one of the most impressive resumes of, of anyone you will see in uh, in not just even IO psychology, but in psychology in general. He's a, he's a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, he's uh, a fellow in, uh, in many different parts of, of uh, the APA organization. So Division 8, Division 14, Division, uh, Division 5. Uh, he's a fellow in the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology. Uh, Fred is on a whole bunch of editorial boards and has done tons of editorial work, which basically means he is um, – uh, helping vet what kinds of research comes out, what kinds of research gets published and, and makes its way to the public. Uh, he has also been the chair of a national, uh, national Academy of Sciences committee for engineering and medicine. Um, He's been the chair of a whole bunch of uh, committees, uh, well, one in particular around uh, open science and methodology, which I think is a really important topic. I don't think we'll get into that too much today. He was also the president of the Society of Industrial and Organizational Psychology uh, from 2017 to 2018. So Fred comes from a super impressive background. Has I I can't, I don't think I can even total up your number of publications. Um, It's a huge number of publications on a whole variety of topics. And like I said, is a particular expert on this topic of automated decision-making. So Fred, happy new year. And thanks so much for coming to join us. 
Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, I, I'm glad there's no video here. People would see me blush. I, I, I appreciate all the all the means of introduction here. Uh, let me say, I'll put a plug in here in, in, in correcting you as well, just to say that um, I'm, I'm chairing the uh, Board on Human Systems Integration with the National Academies. So I'm, I'm not a National Academies member, uh, but I am uh, involved in this way. And human systems integration is um, a, you know, a broad uh, term that, in, that, pulls in uh, industrial organizational psychology, personality psychology is certainly relevant, human factors, psychology, cognitive psychology, engineering, bioengineering, those are all relevant. And I use that as perhaps a segue into our own talk today, talking about technology and, and measurement. Well, if you aren't in the National Academy yet, then it, it isn't very far off. So oh, I, I don't feel oh too goodness bad. <laughs> Well, yeah, Ryan, and, and after all of that uh, additional background information on Fred, I've realized that I probably need to do more with my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm but, jealous of you, Blake. Um, but no, this is, uh, it, it really is, uh, it, the only thing it reflects perhaps is uh, my age and um, the the opportunity to get involved in, in so many interesting things in, in our field. So uh, again, thanks for having me. Well, Fred, it's great for you to be with us. So, you know, let's get right into it, Fred. We we brought you on the podcast to talk about automated decision-making. So I guess to kick things off, can you explain for our listeners what we mean by automated decision-making? Well, when I was asked to uh, comment on automated decision-making, I guess my first reaction would be, like many, is that um, that's a pretty broad label that, that um, actually inspires some thinking, further thinking around the topics of AI and machine learning and big data um, in terms of its specifics, right? So um, people, people may not have the same reaction to AI. They, there, there might be some uh, assumption that it's this sophisticated technology. But when you use the phrase automated decision-making, which is fairly similar to AI, I think people might actually stop a bit more and reflect further and say, hey, wait a minute, um, what is automated decision-making? Is there, um, there's so many things that are, that are automated in a sense. Um, you know, you set the timer on your microwave and uh, it tells you when, when your hot pocket is ready and perhaps that's uh, automated decision-making at some level. Um, you know, all joking aside, um, you look at our uh, at our history well prior to AI, just the implementation of statistical methods and and the decisions that we we make from them. There's some automated components to that in terms of how we approach analyses, interpret results. Um, those are automated. There's also automation prior to analyses on the uh, on the data. Uh, Maybe, maybe not the collection side, but say the interaction side where, um, you know, these days, if you, if you think about uh, employees out on a, a warehouse floor interacting with robots who are also performing some of the complementary tasks of work, there's some automated decision making um, that is intermixed perhaps with the human decision making. The same could be said for uh, medical settings or for educational technologies 
um, and so on. So the, the, the phrase automated decision-making is pretty broad. It's actually as broad as some of the um, legal issues that have arisen in terms of uh, state and federal legislation uh, around the associated concerns for um, employee privacy um, and, and so on. So I'll stop there and um, see what y'all think. Well, well, yeah, thanks for that, Fred. And, and I mean, I think that, that is one of the key questions that comes to mind for me is what do we mean by automated? Like what, what counts as an automated decision, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I, if I go to lunch and pick something out off of a lunch menu, I mean, did I make that decision automatically? Um, like, is that an automated decision or are we really talking about computer aided decisions? Uh, I think when we talk about uh, the kinds of decisions we're typically thinking about in the workplace, um, you know, uh, if if I have a, a candidate for a job and, um, you know, I met them on the elevator and I liked them, is that an automated decision? Or if I saw their resume and I liked it, is that an automated decision? Like, I don't like what at what. <laughs> What makes something an automated decision versus versus not? It's really not clear to me, although I think in a lot of these places, what they are referring to is um, things that are based on machine learning and AI, which to me sounds like a computer-aided decision. Um, and, and I think we'll get into a little bit later on about you know whether this is good or bad and, and that sort of thing. Well, so... You know, as we talk about AI and machine learning, one of the positive aspects of using that type of technology um, to make automated decisions in, let's say, the job application process is that it saves time. But, Fred, can you talk about the effectiveness of these tools and whether they actually work? Sure. Um, So, indeed, one of the uh, virtues of AI or or machine learning related technologies is the time saving among other virtues um, associated with these technologies and algorithms. So AI tools, for instance, might be viewed as um, engaging. Um, They might be viewed as, uh, so gamification, that type of thing, which I I know we're going to talk about, uh, might be viewed certainly as more scalable because it's deliverable uh, through technology as opposed to, um, in-person interviews. Although I suppose if you if you get into virtual reality or, or certain technologies, those might have to be done on more of a you know a customized basis, where a person might might come into the organization or a third-party facility or something like that. But in general, AI is thought of as um, time-saving, engaging, scalable, and uh, and and. Who's to, uh, who's to dislike those features? Um, but as you noted at the end of your question there is, uh, how do we know whether they're effective or, or whether they, they, quote, work, as you say? Um, this opens the door to a lot, of, a lot of issues that are faced with any type of uh, assessment, not just AI. Um, perhaps the issues become uh, more... Um, pressing with AI in some sense, if they were affecting, you know, uh, because of the large scale, a lot more people, for example, or the decisions were happening faster and they were more critical. The the questions, in other words, may take on uh, different nuances with regard to whether it works or not. 
but but the question of working uh, takes us to some principles that we have as test developers been relying on for for decades, um, if not a century. Um, those of uh, our friends, uh, reliability, validity, and fairness, uh, which comes out of both uh, the, the, the psychometric or statistical literatures, uh, but it's also a conceptual or theory-driven type orientation. In other words, how do we, how do we know uh, what we're measuring is uh, important and, and uh, relevant? That comes from our, our brain uh, before any statistics are applied to, to data. Um, and then there are legal and ethical issues that we want to address uh, both proactively and in terms of legislation that is out there. So I guess I could talk about any of those aspects in terms of whether um, AI works or not. Uh, we, could, we could start with reliability. I, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just focus on reliability for now and say that um, I have, I have uh, compared AI with a coin flip before in, uh, in writing and uh, actually a tweet. <laughs> but just to, just to say that um, AI and a coin flip can have some parallels in the sense that they, are both, they both can uh, result in fast decision-making. And a fair coin actually is unbiased. Um, but... Um, perhaps we want something more from AI than a coin flip, right? We want to select people um, for reasons that are job relevant. Uh, we want to select them on characteristics that are uh, going to be there when the, when the job applicant actually shows up on the job. And in other words, on, on stable, not just relevant characteristics, but stable characteristics. Um, and the list goes on. We want, we want AI to predict organizational uh, outcomes that the employee has control over. Um, we want the whole process to be fair from start to finish to, to diversity of applicants applying. Um, and the list goes on. So, so it's, not, it's not that I can, I can uh, apply those criteria to every um, AI technology that's out there. AI is certainly not just one thing after all. Um, and also um, this our work is always ongoing. So assessing reliability, validity, and fairness is, is always an ongoing, uh, never-ending process and uh, keeps people like me employed, I suppose. Well, uh, you know, Fred, I, that's a list I think that's kind of, I think it's pretty common or, you know, reliability, validity, fairness, at least when we're talking about, you know, amongst folks in the psychometric testing industry. And 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 all three of those have been considered long, important uh, uh but but to that list, I, I've been adding more and more frequently, particularly around this discussion around um, AI, machine learning, um, big data sorts of approaches. Uh, I've been adding um, uh, uh, transparency to that list as well. And and what I mean by that is not necessarily that everybody knows how the algorithm works or everybody knows how the AI works or how it's making those decisions. But what I do mean is that somebody somewhere could tell you how the inputs affect the output. So, so I mean, if we think about any kind of decision we make, we have to take in some kind of input, right? If I'm going to try to hire somebody for a job and I do an interview with them, I'm taking an input 
right? Um, I'm evaluating that candidate and then I'm making a decision, right? That's the output, right? Um, and, and in a computer-aided kind of decision, it's the same thing. I'm putting a bunch of data and some numbers, whatever it might be. It might be some uh, resume information. It might be how they uh, uh, blink their eyes in an interview. It could be all, whole, you know, it could be their social media profile. A whole bunch of things could go into this, but I have all these inputs. It could be uh, assessment scores on a personality assessment. And then at the end of it, there's some output, right? I've made a decision. And to me, what I mean by transparency is that there should be somebody. It doesn't have to be the public, but there ought to be somebody who could tell you that that output is different from this person's output because of that input, right? Or how changing one input led to some change in the outputs. And I think that's really valuable. Uh, I mean, I think it would be really strange to be uh, a chief science officer on a on a witness stand um, and being asked by a lawyer. So if this person had answered this question this way instead or had done this instead in the interview, what would have been the result? And if you have to say, I don't know, I feel pretty uncomfortable about that. Like, I feel like I should be able to say, well, this is how that input would change that output. This is why this person would have got a different score if they did that. So to me, the the transparency is also really valuable, but I don't think historically we've talked about that. Yeah, I I think that um, transparency takes on more nuance in the world of AI where you have Uh, multiple types of complexity coming together. So you have the complexity of data that might be coming through more than just standard traditional testing, right? So uh, game-based behaviors or social media, um, maybe even eye blinks, as you noted, there there could be all kinds of data coming in there. Um, Coupled with machine learning, which itself mines data for complex relationships. So not only are the data complex, the algorithms are as well, and the two are coming together, which I think heightens the concern for transparency. Um, Related to that is the the point, um, which is I think related to uh, perhaps uh, being in the court setting, as you note, is what parts of that then can be explained or is explainable? And is it... Is the process is what what is being explained, or is it the content, or is it both? So you could explain how machine learning works. You could explain how the data are collected. Can you explain how the data are connected to the algorithms and how algorithms lead to decisions? So there's sort of a there's sort of a pipeline there, I would say. And in line with that is uh, sort of like when you're when you're conducting uh, academic research is the question of what is driven top down and what is driven bottom up. So, so uh, top down is the, the job relevance um, press that you have for why you collect certain data in the first place. Um, bottom up is, can be a, um, useful, um, exploratory, uh, but should be questioned in terms of their use. So, um, you, you know, I'll, I'll hang on to the example of iBlinks, where um, you would have to make a pretty strong case for that to be um, relevant relevant to work. If it did correlate with work-relevant information in the application materials, or it correlated with even outcomes in organizations, you would at least start wondering and exploring, but you would 
you would still remain uh, pretty questionable, uh, uh, question, questioning that. Um, the, the point about um, answers to particular questions, if somebody asks you, you know, somebody, somebody answers a question about conscientiousness, let's say, and they say they show up to meetings on time and you say, well, what if the person answered differently? Would you make a different decision? Um, I think, um, you know, kind of walking the line here on, on that is the fact that uh, showing up for meetings on time does reflect um, what you're trying to measure, the underlying construct or theme of conscientiousness. But the point about personality testing is not that a person answers that particular question in a certain way at that point in time. It's more that they endorse certain themes related to conscientiousness at that point in time. So do they, do they pay attention to details? Do they uh, set goals and follow through with them? Um, and do they show up for meetings on time? So there might be some variability if they were asked to answer the questions again. But the point is that hopefully the underlying theme, the signal, uh, triumphs over the noise. And I think asking multiple items to get at underlying constructs, that's, a, that's something we've been doing for a century in psychometrics and measure development. And I think we need to think about that in the AI world where, you know, making sure that we are getting at construct relevant, work relevant issues as we apply machine learning algorithms uh, to get at underlying uh, relationships that are relevant to work. Well, I, I would just add one other thing, Fred, which is that it, and it goes back to Blake's question here, which is when when we when I evaluate when when people ask me to evaluate you know different assessment or different assessment methods really even not even just different assessments but different assessment methods I tend to try to evaluate them in terms of three criteria one is uh, one is validity which I know a lot of people like to talk about validity and reliability separately but you know for me look if the thing isn't if the thing isn't reliable it can't be valid so if the thing has validity if the thing actually predicts some outcome then we know it has to have some modicum of reliability. Um, other, I mean, because you know, reliability is, is really about the degree to which it can predict itself. Um, and if it can predict uh, something else, then it has to be able to predict itself. But in any case, um, so I talk about validity. But then I also talk about fairness, of course, which is one that you mentioned. The other one, and this is the one that's sort of subtly hidden in, in Blake's question, is cost, right? And so I think the jump to AI and the jump to sort of this automated decision-making kind of process is really about mitigating cost, right? It's about how much time does it take? How, how fast can I make these decisions? Um, you mentioned some things about candidate experience or trying to be engaging for the candidates. And, and so it, it seems like there's this real emphasis on assessment cost. And I think to, to my eye, less uh, discussion, there's still quite a bit of discussion around fairness, uh, I think going on today, but less and less discussion about validity, less and less discussion about whether or not the method actually uh, results in getting high quality candidates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't help but agree with that. Um, and uh, one one only needs to go back to the coin flip to uh, to get at that idea that um, coin yes. flips coin flips are are fair if it's a fair coin. <laughs> um, coin flips are fast. Um, they're not necessarily engaging, um, but they but will. They're pretty cheap. <laughs> they're pretty cheap if it's a penny, I suppose. <laughs> um, and it, and it will get you to a decision very quickly. So then the question with and I'm. Of course, I'm, I'm uh, uh, caricaturing what selection systems are really like, 
But if we use that as a baseline and 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 say, well, how how are measures going beyond what a coin flip could do? I think that 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 can be stimulating for getting into these questions about well, the scores need to be stable and job relevant. Um, they need to be predictive, as you note. Um, they also need to be. Um, they need to be. They need to be considered in light of the broader system of who are we recruiting to be selected and what kind of training, uh, formal and informal training, what kind of management and teamwork is going on in the organization? Because all those things uh, obviously have an effect on outcomes as well, and perhaps those uh, need to be researched as much as selection itself. So when you know, if people ask me about a selection test, um, I'll, I'll tell them something about a selection test. But I'll also, uh, you know, open the aperture and say, well, are you sure you only have a selection issue? Because um, as we know, organizations are um, a system with lots of different things uh, that are going on and that can be that can be intervened on. So, of course, I'm I'm uh, I, I've I've. I focus on selection. I I, I I focus on those benefits, but but I also really benefit from talking with experts in in these other domains that have an influence on 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 job applicants once they once they get into the workplace. Wow, you guys, this this uh, topic isn't complex at all. Um, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And Ryan, you know, I you had mentioned earlier about in regard to the cost, and you know, maybe people paying less attention to what these different technologies or, um, you know, types of assessments used to make these decisions, you know, that these organizations really aren't paying as much attention to whether they work as well as they should, but more so to the cost. However, you know, looking at it on the other side of someone who is taking these assessments and then looks at it like they didn't get a job because of this, you know, I think that's whenever some of these new technologies could be under right. a, a microscope, which also gets back to your point on the importance of transparency, I think, as well. So mm-hmm. I think that's there's going to be a lot of give and take there. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, definitely. Moving on to my next question, I know we were, you know, we mentioned this briefly earlier, but we want to talk a little bit more about it, and that's um, the proliferation of these game-based assessments in the hiring pr- uh, process you know, to determine if someone's a good fit for a job. But Fred, I'm curious what your thoughts are on these types of assessments and, you know, how effective are they? Sure. Well, we're, we're just beginning to uh, develop, implement, and understand game-based assessments as a field, um, you, you know, at least in, in the relative sense where traditional testing has been going on for at least a century. Um, whereas game-based assessment and the technologies associated with it are, are constantly changing. So I'm saying that uh, to hedge a little bit and not give a definitive response. But I will give you what I have picked up on in my own um, experience and, and examination of what, what's out there, my limited examination of what's out there. Um, and some of our research um, on game-based assessment where we've we developed a game-based uh, assessment of, of personality. And that is that um, the traditional questions really come to light again and perhaps in different ways, but um, 
how do we know we're measuring something that is work related or work relevant? So um, the idea of conducting a job analysis to understand the, the knowledge, skills, abilities, personality, interests, other factors, um, understanding what of those are not only relevant to the job in the organization, but also selection relevant, that still remains important. And then can we, can we connect what is important to any assessment, game-based or otherwise? Is it, you know, if it's important, you then have to ask, is it measurable? And then what data support um, the measure uh, in terms of our friends, uh, reliability, validity, and fairness. So um, I, what I have seen out there, um, you know, it can vary quite a bit. Um, some, without naming names, of course, um, some measures are uh, on the range of being more experimental and exploratory where um, people engage in a, in a fun game and there's some, at least some loose conceptual reasoning that the game is related to um, work relevant activities or work relevant, um, you know, it doesn't have to be technically focused, right? It can be more about teamwork and, and engagement. Um, and that might uh, at a conceptual level be related to, to the game. Of course, the question then is, you know, where's, Where's the data showing that and how does the job analysis help provide those links? So that's one end of the continuum. Another end of the continuum is where um, a game is, uh, and I, I, you can't see the air quotes, but I'm using air quotes. Um, the game is almost like a traditional assessment. It just happens to be online. So, so there are cognitive assessments out there, for example, that look a lot like the traditional measures of cognitive ability. And those um, actually do have also, maybe no surprise then, have, have often have more data um, associated with it in support of, of its use that the, you know, let's say you're measuring um, mathematical ability and mathematical ability is required on the job. And so there's some justification for its use. And, and furthermore, the, the game might be uh, more aligned with traditional measures of mathematical ability. So that, that's kind of more, more uh, established ground. Um, so it's not to say we shouldn't keep exploring um, and pushing the, the frontiers of measurement with all types of assessments, uh, but, but the principles for measurement um, that that we that are that are, have arisen from hard won lessons. Actually, uh, they 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 still apply, and we should we should keep uh, keep our eye on the ball there as we as we collect them. Um, I'll finally I'll say that um, I'll refer back to the the point I made about how we developed a game based assessment ourselves. So, some colleagues of mine at at Humro, along with me and my graduate students, um, we developed a game-based assessment of personality. Um, and um, this was, you know, I can't say we were working nonstop at it, but I will say it, it took us uh, uh, about two to three years to develop um, in terms of not just uh, uh, getting the uh, game to, to reflect the, the kind of constructs of interest, which were around 
goal orientation and conscientiousness types of constructs, but then also getting the game actually developed and working with uh, game developers who are um, more more technically oriented. So all that took a took a while to develop. And and what did we find? Well, we found that um, long story short, the, the games. Uh, did not converge very strongly with traditional measures of personality. So if it was measuring personality, it, it must have been something unique from those more traditional measures. Uh, furthermore, the measures did correlate with more traditional measures of, of cognitive ability. So even though we, um, we deliberately uh, attempted to keep the cognitive requirements of the game low because we were we were actually concerned about that sort of possibility. We wanted to focus only on personality. Uh, we at least in our attempts we couldn't do it. And I I, I think that's another thing to keep in mind with game based assessment is that um, with any of these things AI game based assessment it's not just one thing right. There are many different forms of assessment. It's just a, a blanket term and every Every measure, just like traditional measures, every measure has to be evaluated on its own merits. And so, um, you know, but we, we did make a serious effort. We have a lot of experience in, in the field of measurement, and there were a lot of people working together on it, many, many eyes, many diverse perspectives in trying to develop the measure right. And uh, we, we, we did struggle with it. So it is an, it is an object lesson. It's not what I don't want people to conclude is that you can't measure personality with games. You, you certainly could. Um, it, it's just that we, we had a hard time in our specific instance. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, the verdict still needs to be out as games continue to be developed on, on what kind of reliability and validity evidence can be amassed in support of them. Yeah, well, that, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Fred. I mean, I think, uh, you know, to your points earlier about the cognitive Based uh, your cognitive assessments that are game based. God, I remember on a you know the when I was in elementary school, you'd go to the computer lab, right? So I think everybody now just has computers, right, with them. But um, you know, we'd have to go to we go to the computer lab, and or maybe there'd be one computer in your classroom, and you might get computer time on it or something like that, right? And mm-hmm. and there was a, 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 a I remember a game called Number, Number Munchers, Munchers where, where you. Uh, you jumped around with a little frog and um, you tried to like, uh, there'd be little math problems. And if you jumped to the right one, right. Or maybe you had to eat, eat all the even numbers or something like that. Right. And, you know, for us, that was the most fun thing ever, right? It was, this was a lot of fun, you know, this was a a great game, but um, it it was, it was really you know, it was a cognitive test, right? I mean, there were right answers, there were wrong answers. Um, and, And I think, so to me, it seems really intuitive to think that cognitive tests can be translated into these game-like things pretty easily. Whereas for personality, it just seems far more complicated to say, okay, how, like, I feel like I could create games that measure really narrow aspects of personality. Like, I feel like I could create games that measure detail orientation, maybe. But I want to get at broader constructs, like you mentioned earlier, conscientiousness. I feel like, gosh, that would be so hard because I'm going to need to be measuring so many different specific behaviors to get at this broader idea. 
Um, and, and I mean, so it's interesting to, to, to hear your, your, your story on it. Um, it, it reminds me of a couple of different things. Uh, we had Richard Landers came to talk about game-based assessments, uh, as part of our distinguished speaker series a while back. And he mentioned something similar. I'm not sure if he mentioned it in his talk or if he mentioned that at dinner afterwards, but he mentioned a similar kind of experience, um, in, in trying to develop personality, uh, game-based assessments. And it also reminds me of, uh, 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 well, uh, I forget exactly his title, Chief, he might be the Chief Science Officer, Chief Innovation Officer at Rebellion, uh, who, who um, I've had several conversations with. And, and Rebellion, for those of you who are listening, is a, um, uh, they have a game-based cognitive ability test. They also have a game-based um, emotional intelligence test as well. And when he talked about the amount of investment required to build their game-based cognitive assessment, it, it, it was really daunting, right? So you basically have to commit fully to developing this game, which is really expensive, having no idea whether or not will, it will work. And in fact, in their case, they found like two or three different of the games they tried didn't work. They just had to abandon them completely. It was a total waste of investment. And so, you know, game-based assessments around personality, not only are they more complex, it's, I think it's a way bigger investment if, you, if you're going to try to go for it. Um, it's a lot of risk involved because you don't know if the thing is actually going to work until you actually built the entire game uh, around it. So uh, I can see why there's, there's a lot of struggles there. At the same time, to your point, Fred, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, just because you haven't seen, uh, you know, a, a duck before doesn't mean ducks don't exist. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, um, people, um, you know, it's not to, to thwart the enthusiasm for game-based assessment, given the engagement um, that can happen. And, and given that there are a lot of smart people out there that uh, think about how to translate constructs into actual measures that, that reliably reflect the constructs. Um, it's just it's just challenging for the reasons that you mentioned. And, um, you know, part of our game was to narrow down constructs. You mentioned detail orientation, and we, we actually narrowed down the game where it, it actually turned out not to be as engaging as a result, but we were we were trying to get at detail orientation as, as part of the game. And, and, and that could be an alternative explanation for findings in some sense is uh, by focusing on a narrow construct, did some of the engagement go away? I think that's the kind of, um, the kind of research that could continue in game-based assessment is um, when and if um, there are trade-offs between engagement and, and measurement within the game context, that, that could be an interesting avenue potentially. But you're totally right about the about the investment as part of the the mix of the trade-offs we make when we when we develop measures. Um, so so it, it is a risk reward kind of balance from multiple stakeholder perspectives. Okay, so changing gears here, Fred, how can automated assessments particularly the algorithms used with them affect minority groups or people with disabilities? Yeah, that's a great question and a question that has uh, obviously been of concern um, everywhere you look in terms of the 
popular press and in academic circles and even at uh, federal and state policy levels to ensure that um, so-called algorithmic bias is addressed and and mitigated. Um, I think the the effect is is something that that has been uh, permeated those those channels, which is that uh, we we clearly don't want unfair employment processes in general, but we also don't want them uh, uh, showing disparities um, between any subgroup, minority subgroup, uh, gender subgroups, um, age and disability, and and so on. Uh, protected classes under under Title VII come to mind. And so um, mitigate, mitigating those, those uh, issues means taking a close look at data. It means uh, thinking about uh, the job relevance of measures and making sure, you know, going back to the prior conversation we had about transparency, ensuring that what is being measured is, is selection relevant for, for everybody, um, you know, for diverse populations. Um, that that job requirements are are what we are trained to focus on in measurement and irrelevant characteristics uh, such as race, gender, disability are not supposed to. And so thinking about that through the lens of uh, measure development um, all the way through to, um, you know, interpreting uh, scores and making hiring decisions uh, needs to be needs to be on the table. So we need diverse populations involved in the development of AI technologies and algorithms. Um, we need to, uh, to pay attention to the, um, the job analysis, um, to the uh, legal uh, circumstances, the, the Title VII, the legal requirements of, of hiring, um, and so on. And so uh, you, you mentioned disabled subgroups, which is, I think, interesting in terms of uh, game-based assessments. Um, just when you asked that, I was thinking about how, um, you know, people who are uh, impaired in some way in their senses of so vision or, or sight or hearing might, might be um, at a disadvantage uh, when they're engaged in game-based assessments, and they would have been fine under traditional assessments. So so what do we do there in terms of accommodation, I, I think, is an interesting issue, um, along with the, the, the other issues that we've, we've struggled with in traditional measures as well to ensure for, for fair testing. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a good point about uh, the, the um, individual dis- with disabilities. And, and I know some game-based uh, test publishers that have run into that. They basically said, well, this isn't designed. You know, this isn't designed to, for individuals. This isn't normed for, for those kind of individuals. And we sort of recommend they take something else or not take an assessment at all, uh, which, which I think, you know, does pose kind of a problem. Um, but in terms of like the, the larger issue of algorithmic bias, uh, I, I, I've always found this uh, to be a pretty fascinating topic because many of the algorithms that we talk about or that we're scared of or that we're worried about um, – causing us problems are uh, really just designed to reflect human judgments and and you know uh, the algorithms are really really good i think you mentioned in one of the earlier comments read about um how how they're really good at picking up these uh sort of hidden patterns or hidden trends or trends that we might not have noticed were there before 
Uh, there's a, a, a nice website. I think it's called survivalofthebest.com. I think it's still active, uh, where you can actually kind of do this yourself and you have to pick between orange and blue people and um, you get a little resume information about them and you just start choosing. And, you, and of course, you're trying your best to be fair and to be equal and to evaluate only the resume. Um, but what happens is in your little your little sample, your little test sample where you start to build this algorithm, it, it eventually it t- takes what you're doing, it takes your human inputs and builds an algorithm around it. And then what happens is eventually uh, you start to see a big bias in uh, one of the groups you're selecting. You you start overselecting on the oranges or the blues or something like that. And, and what happens is you know these these algorithms, which are designed to reflect human judgment, will start to learn little things that you didn't intend them to learn. Um, and uh, and, and it just overemphasizes. It just emphasizes those really, really well, right? In the algorithm's mind, it's just becoming more and more accurate because it's doing what you wanted it to do. And so, the real irony to me here is that attacks on algorithms, attacks on automated decision making, um, put us back in the world of uh, you know human based decision making, right? May, but. But really, if we look at the problems that we've seen with algorithms, it's when they exacerbate, it's when they overdo the human judgment. So I, I think, you know, to that point earlier, I think you mentioned about speed and, and scaling up. One of the reasons we've identified these problems is because the algorithms are replicating human judgments at large scale. And what we're really finding is that it's the human judgments that are biased. It's the human judgments that are problematic. We only notice it when we scale it up. Um, and so I think it's really ironic that the attack is against the algorithm when really the problem is actually the human. Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan, that algorithms in the, in the scenario you outline are really just capitalizing on the regularities of human decision-making. And so, um, you know, what parts of decision-making are um, fair and relevant to, to selection and which parts are, are biased, um, that's something we need to think about uh, apart from the statistics. As you noted, um, you know, machine learning, it, its job is to search for regularities and, and uh, achieve some form of, of accurate prediction um, after mining the data. And so um, on top of that, you have to say, well, accurate for what? Was it, was it good or was it bad? And, you know, it sounds a little Zen-like, but, it, but the algorithm is telling you the way the world is, not the way the world is in the future, the way you want it to be. Um, and so um, there is that constant iteration that's needed between uh, the, the algorithms and the humans to get it, to get it right. Um, you know, biases within um, interviews can uh, be picked up on uh, by algorithms. But as you know, the fault isn't the algorithm. It's more the, the, the data that it's operating on that needs to be uh, improved. I've actually I've, I've made that note um, before in our in the in the context of machine learning that often the issues with machine learning prediction problems and algorithms isn't necessarily the algorithms. It's the, um, in many cases, it's, it's the criteria we're trying to predict that are, um, that could be improved. And there's no, I don't make any illusion that perfection uh, can be reached, but any efforts that can be made to improve our, our data will, um, will pay off. Well, and I don't think this is to blame any 
person or group of persons who are creating these algorithms necessarily. It's just, I think we need to look back and realize that they're human, you know, just like anybody else. So, um, Fred, you know, another topic that I wanted to get into, and this is one that I feel like is, you know, I think for even a number of years has been somewhat controversial and one that, you know, if you ask hiring managers or whoever's in charge of um, the selection process at XYZ organization, they would probably um, want to neither confirm or, or deny or whatever you want to call it, um, whether they do this or not, but whether uh, they want to agree to it or, or whether they want to admit it or not, companies do often mine an applicant's online or digital footprint to make hiring decisions. And I'm just curious from your perspective, what are some of the legal or ethical risks with this approach? Yeah, Blake, well, you're asking the hard questions today. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And as you know, as well, and and as you know, companies uh, may not confirm or or deny those behaviors, or they may in fact deny (laughs) those, those behaviors. And um, I think that's because there are legal and ethical risks um, that are implied by your question. Um, one can understand why a company would, would do this, um, because perhaps there are legal or ethical risks, at least in the minds of those doing it, uh, for not checking out the background on somebody through these more um, informal but uh, technical uh, kind of channels. Uh, to get at people's histories. Um, it, it, it speaks to another issue, which is how much um, information supplements uh, an employer's decision-making above and beyond AI technologies or, or anything that's automated um, in, a, in a hiring system. So, so a structure for hiring might uh, appear fair on all its faces where people say they submit a, a resume following certain guidelines, perhaps, uh, you know, be sure include include your X, Y, and Z credentials. There might be a structured interview where everyone's asked the same questions. They might all take the same tests, um, AI-based or otherwise. Um, so, so all those processes may be standardized, but then, then to your point, at least in a broad sense, um, organizations may be looking at more, even broader information that's available out there and uh, incorporating it, perhaps weighting it, maybe even overweighting it um, in a sense. Uh, The one zero weighting in that some people have that information and other people may have scrubbed that information. Um, By the way, what if they, uh, what if minority subgroups or or lower SES uh, groups don't have the uh, means to hire. I see these services on TV that can, you know, they look at your internet history and can can scrub it for you. Well, not everybody's going to have access to that, so it becomes a fairness issue um, as much as an ethical and legal issue as well in terms of uh, people having their uh, reputations out there. Um, you know what they were like as teenagers out there. Whatever's out there. Um, online uh, for employers to be considering. And so I'll, I'll leave it as, uh, as a point to say that 
we do need to think about that in terms of what our selection systems are really like in the trenches and how do we address that in terms of its its fairness and every every organization needs to be um, thoughtful on on that front uh, because it is a uh, it is kind of a wild west we don't talk about it and yet people do it um, there are some researchers in organizational psychology that look into this um, Amber Schroeder and Mike Zicker are names that come to mind uh, if you if you look up uh, the term cyber vetting um, these are researchers who have looked into organizations that at least uh, will say on a survey they engage in those behaviors um, they may not they may not get into the details, but but we need to we need to do more research. is uh, is a professorial way of answering your question. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that's that, that's very true. I, I mean, the the other thing to keep in mind, and, and I think this is the point you were making, also, Fred, is that well, I guess two points that that you made that I that I agree with here. One is that. Um, you know, some years ago, there was a company uh, that they've already gone out of business who was saying they could help you hire your babysitter um, by, you know, scraping their Instagram profiles um, and, and telling you if they were anger prone or, um, you know, dangerous or lazy or any of these kinds of things. And, um, you know, I, I mean, that they're really obvious problem with this is that anybody can give you anything as an Instagram account, right? Or I could pay a company to clean up my Instagram account or to, to create an Instagram account that makes me look in a particular way, right? So so that that's kind of a problem uh, for, from you know, any kind of use, using any kind of social media scraping. It's like, well, what account are you actually getting? How do you know that's a valid account? All of those kinds of things. Um but at the same time, I, I think the other point you've been making all along the way, Fred, is about job relevance. And, you know, to, to what degree is someone's Instagram profile or their Facebook profile or, or things like that, or even their LinkedIn profile, uh, for, for that matter, you know, job relevant? Maybe, you know, maybe the LinkedIn profile has some job relevant information. Uh, maybe um, some past history is job relevant, but um yeah, I think that's a harder sell than than your typical kinds of job interview questions. Right. Well, and also um, it might be relevant, but not everybody had the opportunity necessarily to provide it. Or you know, going back to kind of a standardization notion that if, if the if the application process is supposed to give everybody a fair chance, then uh, this is a clearly uneven type of um, assessment. Um, even, even game-based assessments can be subject to this type of criticism where, um, everybody may have opportunity to engage in a game, but because of the conditions one goes through within the game, you know, taking a turn here or a turn there in a virtual room might lead to an entirely different experience that is, um, not necessarily related to, to job relevance. And so the, the non-standardization of a, of a game is, is, is kind of in this same ballpark through the perspective of non-standard information uh, potentially influencing hiring decisions. You know, and I don't want to hop on a soapbox here, but, <laughs> you know, thinking about companies that do maybe mine or, or, or scrape someone's digital or online footprint, you know, I, I remember back whenever I started my career, I was at a 
a PR firm in based in Tulsa. And they kind of gave us, you know, I was just a young, fresh out of college graduate. And they kind of gave us advice about social media because, you know, Facebook was becoming very much prevalent. Twitter had just, um, I think a year prior had just formed and they kind of, you know, as a young person, they kind of gave us advice like, Hey, be careful of what you're putting on social media. You know, people can see this, all of that, that, you know, eventually evolves into you worrying about whether or not, you know, you're applying for a job and people are looking at what your, your profile is. And so that gives you the kind of the choice. Do I lock down my profile or do I, you know, create a separate profile that, and keep my real one hidden just for friends. And I just kind of made the conscious decision back then, like, I'm going to keep all of my stuff. You can go look at any of my stuff. It's all available to the public. I am mindful of what I put out there. But you know what? If a company is looking that you know to hire me for something and they don't like what I put on social media, you know what? I'm probably not going to like working with that company anyway. So that's just, that's just my view of, of this. But, but I understand how that can be you know, this can be something problematic and definitely something that faces some, you know, ethical and potentially legal challenges as we continue to move on into the future. So sorry for hopping on the soapbox. For a minute, but, <laughs> it's all good. But, no, that's great. That's interesting. And it, it speaks to these broader um, issues that I think about as a psychologist. Um, and it does focus on selection too, which is things like uh, social desirability, which is often researched in a very narrow focus of trying to look good on an assessment, right? To answer a personality question in the way that you think the employer wants you to, rather than the way that you actually are, for example. You may not be as conscientious as you uh, profess on a traditional measure, for example. But maybe, um, you know, thinking broadly in terms of um, how you appear on social media is there a, you know, what does social desirability look like from that perspective? And do some people, some people are, for whatever reason, more or less uh, diligent about uh, what they, what they reveal about themselves on the internet. So I think this has ties into social desirability construed broadly. I think it has ties into uh, notions of authenticity that appear in organizational research literature. What is an authentic employee? It also has ties into development because we all change over time. And so uh, what you capture on social media may not reflect um, your development or the person who's looking at that information isn't thinking about how you changed um, for the better, of course, right? We all change for the better. Um, and so it's, it's all... Um, yeah, it's, it, it is wound up in those broader human phenomena that you open the door to when you get beyond the standardized uh, nature of tests, which is kind of a dilemma we face anyway in testing, right, is that um, tests are standardized, but the world is not. And so I think this topic of, of scraping, you know, people's social media presence or web presence is, is kind of bridging that divide. Well, so Fred, you know, I've got, you know, we're getting close to, to wrapping this up, but um, there was an article that you and your colleagues at Rice published um, that kind of aims to be a call to action for those developing these new hiring technologies to better evaluate potential risk and liabilities. So if this is a call to action, what would success look like to you on this front? 
That's a great question, Blake. Um, so that paper you're mentioning um, is that personal assessment decisions. Uh, my, my colleague, uh, Nancy Tippins, uh, who's uh, heads up the Tippins group of practitioner, and Mort McPhail, um, who uh, uh, is retired now, but uh, was, was uh, working at Volterra. Uh, they both uh, uh, I've known for a long time uh, through, through SIOP, uh, our, our professional organization. And um, what led to that development of that, that paper was the idea that um, a lot of new and exciting things are happening in the domain of assessment uh, in terms of, you know, whether it's AI or adaptive assessments and so on. And um, I guess as a function of us getting together, we became curmudgeonly and we said, well, hey, don't forget these, uh, these principles of testing that have um, been developed that are the product of uh, hard lessons learned through the development of traditional measures. And when it comes to understanding that we need to gather evidence for uh, I'll repeat it again, reliability, validity, and fairness, and not to forget that um, in the context of AI, not only not to forget that, but in a sense, I think we said, don't forget us <laughs> as IO psychologists, because we do have a lot to offer in terms of the lessons we've learned um, and how that can contribute to improving uh, AI-based measurements. So we, we, we definitely were not seeking to discourage AI measurement, but rather to say that um, we encourage the collection of additional data um, as we would for any test um, to support, uh, to justify its use um, in employment settings. And so I think success uh, to answer your question would involve the continued treatment of these measures in a, in a rigorous uh, research-based manner to assemble the evidence for their use, which, by the way, is a selling point, right, that, that measures that have this rigor should be viewed as more appealing by organizations that seek to use them. I don't think I need to convince uh, the, the current hosts here of that, of that point. Um, but, but science should, be, should sell. It's not, it's not just an academic exercise. Uh, but it also is, is tied to the ethical... Uh, responsibilities we have when we are using tests to select people into organizations that that we want the data to um, to test the hypothesis that that selecting people using the tests is better than not doing so or is better than other alternatives that are out there for selection. Um, I think that's an important people people need to entertain the counterfactuals is that when people say tests aren't perfect, um, I think the, the, the alternative line is to say, well, sure, tests aren't perfect, but what are the alternatives and how, how perfect are those alternatives? So, so keep striving toward the perfect, I think, is part of the answer to this call. And remember our lessons learned from traditional measures because they do apply here in the, uh, you know, the psychometric context, in the, in the uh, you know, science-driven and practice-driven context and in the legal and fairness concerns uh, that are that are driving this interest as well. Well, Fred, you, you said so many things there that I agree with that it's really hard for me to figure out where to where to pick up on. Um, I, I I think one of the things that so I, I read a fair number of 
uh, reviews of the market, uh, of the sort of assessment-based market or the, um, you know, uh, pre-employment selection-based market, like what kind of tools are out there, what companies are out there, right? So these are done by um, mostly private equity firms, right, that are evaluating what's all out there. And basically, they're trying to figure out who should we buy, who has value, all of that kind of thing. What does that market look like? And one of the most cringe uh, worthy phrases that I see all the time. And to me, it's, it's, it gives me a lot of cringe, but I, I'll bet most people reading it think it's fantastic. think this is wonderful. And it is this, and it shows up in almost every one of these reports, technology first, right? It says the market is becoming, uh, is growing with technology first companies or, um, uh, is becoming dominated by technology first, you know, attitudes and approaches. And, you know, to me, that says science last, right? So, you know, this goes back to our earlier discussion about cost um, and, and evaluating different methods and, and um, you know, uh, having a positive candidate experience, um, being scalable, right? That's what technology first is all about. And that's, that's great. There's a lot of reasons you would want that from a business standpoint. But from my point of view, and I think from Hogan's point of view for a long time, science is supposed to be first, right? If, if, and I think to me, when I, when I read your article um, with uh, Nancy and Mort, I thought the same thing is that this is saying, yeah, don't forget that the science is really important, right? It's great to have this technology. It's great to be scalable, but the science is really important. And I would love it if these things would say, you know, when I'm thinking about what would success look like, I would love it if companies said it's science first and, you know, tech supported by technology. There's nothing wrong with state-of-the-art technology, but when we're built on technology first, technology is the most important thing, science, eh, well, whatever, we don't worry about that. Um, gosh, that, that, that worries me a lot. Yeah, and I do think people that are involved in these issues, uh, such as those listening to this podcast, um, are understand that all these approaches uh, coexist and, and should cooperate. And, and actually, that's part of our job is that, um, you know, the value of biopsychology is not just the science and the theory and thinking that underlies measurement, but it's also the, you know, the, the challenge and the opportunity for having that thinking take place in the real world and operate with real world constraints. So science alone, um, I guess can be a snooze fest for some people uh, that they, they have slept through science class or something, but science is really another way of saying, um, focusing on measuring what you think is being measured and testing it. Um, you know, using your head in a sense is, is science, but, but to have a, a rigorous, uh, systematic approach, uh, not letting perfect be the enemy of the good and realizing that you do have to operate within particular constraints of time and cost and labor, um, and really having open conversations with technologists and researchers and I IT folks and, and lawyers, uh, you know, applicants themselves um, to, to get multiple perspectives uh, informing the problems that we, that we struggle with and that we, um, you know, ultimately lead to uh, the outcomes that uh, organizations and, and job applicants uh, hope for 
I, I think, is to ensure um, uh, employees that are, are competent and satisfied. And, uh, you know, it may be disappointing to an applicant to not reach the outcome that they hoped for in any particular job. But um, hopefully in the end, you know, um, as they navigate uh, the job market, they seek their niche just as uh, organizations seek uh, what they're after. Well, Fred, first, thanks so much for coming on and, and joining us. But before we, we let you go, I do have one more question, uh, kind of as a, a way to wrap this thing up. So what advice or warnings would you give to organizations using these new technologies in the hiring process? Advice or warnings? Um, I think I think I would give a similar similar advice uh, for any selection measure, and that is to um, get a broad range of information about your particular um, setting and situation. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, selection is tied to all other practices within the organization uh, when it comes to talent management. So recruiting, um, training, uh, both informal and formal aspects of that, um, onboarding, promoting, managing, you know, the list goes on, teamwork, um, you know, organizational culture, diversity, inclusion. Think about the system broadly when you, when you implement a selection measure because um, nothing is operating in isolation, even, even if you act like it does. So think broadly is one piece of advice. Um, another piece of advice is to um, get as much information as you can about a particular measure and treat it, you, you know, kind of like, a, kind of like when you're, when you're shopping for a car, um, there, there are a variety of ways to understand whether that car is going to work for you or not, right? One way is to test drive it yourself. Another way is to ask people who have used that car before. Um, another way is to get at the technical information that is provided uh, by the manufacturer or by third parties. So there are a variety of ways to get information on the tools that you're using that can inform your decision. Obviously, things like cost and speed and engagement are, are part of those factors. Uh, but getting at the the, the information, um, the, the under the hood information, so to speak, is is really important, and that would be my advice. Um, and you know, ultimately, you do have to make a decision, but um, you know, hopefully. You can um, monitor your decisions as you move along and, um, you know, make sure you have evidence that your decisions are um, are leading to the outcomes that you hope for. So it's a little hard to pack in uh, the stage advice in a couple minutes, but I hope that's a useful direction for folks to be thinking along. Well, I mean, I think it's really valuable and I, I totally agree with what you said there, Fred. And um, look, I, I just want to uh, wrap up by saying 
thanks so much, Fred, for coming on today. Uh, always great to speak with you. Always great to hear uh, what's going on in, in your world. And, um, you know, you always are up to date with the latest of happening in, in uh, IO psychology and even in science more broadly and particularly around uh, personnel selection. So, so thanks so much for taking the time to come on here today. Um, yeah. And uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully getting together with you at PSYOP here in a few months. Great, great. Thanks, thanks, Ryan, and thanks, Blake. It's a it's a real pleasure to be joining you. I appreciate you reaching out to me, and um, you know, importantly, I hope folks listening have uh, either learned something or got their gears turning. And and as as you as your gears are turning, please share your ideas with with us. <laughs> so thanks to the folks listening as well. Yeah, Fred, and and thank you for again for joining us, and and I really think our listeners are going to enjoy this episode a, a great deal. So really appreciate you taking the time to to join us on on this uh, latest episode. So, well, great. all right, yeah, and yeah that thank you so much, and uh, look forward to seeing you all in three D sometime soon. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to it as well, Fred. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast episode forty two. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.